Welcome to Beauty Uncut, the podcast. I'm Shania. I'm Kayla. And I'm Ian. And we're here to bring a new perspective to beauty. Today's podcast is all about menopausal skin. And I am so excited because <laughs> we constantly joke that I'm going through early menopause. No, we don't joke. You've self-diagnosed yourself. No, you? Ian diagnosed No, I've diagnosed me. her. Did you? <laughs> Ian was the one that put it in my head and I was like, from then on, I'm like, great, I've got menopause. Oh, I've got it. I'm going through it. She it, had the symptoms. It's similar to how we all have a breast implant illness. Yeah. <laughs> We've diagnosed that. We've got all we the symptoms. Have we don't have breast implants and we all have BII. But I actually truly do feel like I have menopause. I'm very excited to learn how I can manage my skin when I start, you know, showing the signs of menopause. Mm. Well, I already am showing the signs, but you know. Start showing them more. Yeah. I hope she talks about pre-menopause. Yeah. Or early menopause. Well, you can ask those questions. Don't you worry, I will be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, do you want to talk about anything fun? Is anything happening in your guys' lives? I'm still sick. I can can hear that. (laughs) It might be, you know, only five minutes after the last podcast recording, so I can't imagine you had gotten... Any better in that Yeah, time. unfortunately. Yeah, that's so fine. We're, we're still at NSS. So we're yeah. still sitting on a bed. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I really wish we had a better setup. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes you just have to go with what the flow is. I'm adding that to your list. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the list, should we read out some yeah. of the I think stuff? There's been a quite a few new, <laughs> new additions. Or should we do it in like our own private podcast? I think maybe we'll do it okay. on our own one. Okay, yeah. fine. Guys, stay tuned. But do tuned. add that one. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I hate awkward silence. <laughs> It's oh, wait, are we still going with our fun? Yes. I would lo- uh, tell me something fun. Oh, no. I'd, oh. I was going to introduce oh. the guest. <laughs> I, I don't know if this, this is not relevant, but I wanted to say how I thought it was really cool last night when uh, Sam came and picked us up and drove to the event. I've never been in the back of a Honda Jazz, mm. but the middle seat belt comes out of the roof. Yeah. That's cool. I just... What do you mean? <laughs> Did you not see that? Yeah, like, I saw it, but I thought it was like normal for uh, seatbelts to come out of Ian's the roof. Ian's not used no. to it. In the middle seat. It's usually at, it's out of the back of the seat. Do you know why? Still. It's because you do not drive <laughs> Pavo cars like yeah. us. <laughs> I've literally never... St- Okay, you're telling me there's other cars that have that? Yeah. I'm pretty sure the MG has. That's a lot. Yeah. The good old MG. (laughs) There we go. There you go. There's a first for everything. We should do broken bougie car edition. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, my favorite um, broke car of the week would be my MG. It's actually not even mine. That's how broke I am. It's actually my mom's that I've taken. Mm. What I'd like to hear from Kayla is actually the uh, MG versus Golf R debate. Oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) Shania, were you, were you a part of this last night? I briefly heard it mm. and I just, you know, overheard a lot of heat in the conversation I happening. I told this girl that I hated her car. Yeah. I hate golfs. I hate them so much. Why? I don't know. I really just <laughs> hate them. Is it just them. the vibes? Or? Yeah, I just feel like the vibes of the people who drive golfs, except for Tash, they just think their car is like a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. And it's just, it's not, <laughs> simply put, not. Part of the... Part of the discussion was... Um, I don't remember the discussion, sorry. Well, uh, let me relay it to you. <laughs> so part of it was that guys driving that car, not okay. Mm. Girls driving it, okay. Yeah. Did I say that? Yep. Was that because I was trying to be polite? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but but I'm kidding if you're listening to this, Tash. But so the truth is no one should be driving that car. <laughs> <laughs> they should just discontinue <laughs> it. Just it's fine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> let's get on to it. Let's let's get on to it. 
What car does Jenny drive? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Jenny drives a golf. <laughs> Imagine if she... <laughs> I'm going to ask her what car we, do you we drive, should, we should. Yeah. Shall we introduce... Our guest. Yeah, let's do it. So today we have Dr. Ginny Mansberg on the podcast. Dr. Ginny is a GP. She's based in Sydney and she's been working for 30 years. She has a special interest in menopause, which she's actually written a book about, which is called The M Word. So if you want to check it out. Is that what it means? M for menopause? Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? (laughs) Perfect. So yeah. let's welcome Ginny. Welcome. Oh my God. Did you know she actually owns ESK? The oh really? Care? Yeah. Isn't cool. that the one that you guys were talking about at the last conference that have the patches? That's right. The oh. HA, HA patches. So welcome Ginny to the podcast. Well, Thanks welcome. for having me. I think this might be like my favorite or most excited guest that I'm like wanting to talk to this weekend. I'm so excited to talk about like menopausal skin and menopause in general. Oh, I'm so excited too. I mean, it has come out of the shadows. It's having a bit of a moment, isn't it? Yes. I feel like everything comes, you know, up and down. Well, what would you say? Peaks and troughs? Peaks and troughs. Yes. He always <laughs> says that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's 100% of women. Like, I know it's really important we talk about endometriosis and all of the other stuff, but there is no woman who does not have menopause unless she sadly doesn't make it. You know, her life mm. ends before her ovaries run out of puff. So it's going to hit all of us. Yeah. Before we jump into it, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I feel like sometimes I'm just listing through a bit of a laundry list, but I am <laughs> a GP. My clinical interest is in menopause. I've been a GP for like 35 years. So wow. in Sydney, my second kind of career was in media. And that happened because had a few babysitting disasters and I realised that input-based work had a few limitations. So I went back to uni, did a journalism degree, started writing, did like quite a few columns. I was still doing general practice here and there, but I wrote a book mainly because one of my editors said, hey, I'm a book scout, I can probably get something published for you. And so I was like, shit, I better think of something to write because like I just Mm. so want to write a book, wrote a book. I think it sold like three copies. But anyway, one of them landed on the desk of the incoming women's health magazine editor that actually, sorry, didn't have an editor at that stage, but they did have me. They rang my publisher and said, she looks all right. Can we have her for our magazine? At the time that the magazine gets bought, the whole Mm. magazine network gets bought by Network 7. So all of a sudden I'm in the Channel 7 stable. How That's how I made my TV debut. (laughs) Nothing was very planned. And then I sort of ended up with like this hybrid like, I do podcasting. I also have a couple of podcasts and I do like writing. I've written a lot of books, one of which was the M word, how to thrive in menopause. I have this whole menopause practice, but I also have a couple of other businesses. So I do consulting in the synthesis of B2B with B2C communications in healthcare. So that's business to business and business to consumer because a lot of companies market straight to the consumer but don't bring the healthcare professional along. I also have a skincare company called Evidence Skincare and we now have offices in the UK and the US which is awesome and then we have I have a business in doing menopause education in the workplace. So we cater to government, we cater to large and small organisations doing education for people around menopause because 10% of women actually quit work which is Because of menopause? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. You guys are so similar. You guys both do so much. I'm like sitting here like, cool, I have one job. Yeah, yeah, I I guess with the the clinical interest in menopause, did that come early in your GP career or or was that later on? No. Um, So how that came about was 
I had written a few books and just decided that writing books was not for me. It was just like like a lot of work for not a lot of money and not going to lie, don't mind money. Anyway, so a, a publisher came to me and said, why don't you write a book on menopause? We really need someone to do it. And I was like, fuck off. How old do you think I am? Oh, wait, I'm 50. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. So I actually did not have a clinical interest in menopause, but it, what had been dawning on me, because I do one podcast, which is educational for GPs, and every time we would have a doctor in, like an expert, like Professor Rod Baber, like Dr. Terry Ferran, mm-hmm. who would talk about menopause, I would have that light bulb moment of, I don't really know anything. And that is a bit scary. So as I was just starting to join the Australasian Menopause Society, educate myself, because you know, as we both know, there is no education right. for doctors yeah. at all. <laughs> it is all self-directed learning. Mm-hmm. This opportunity came up and I was like, okay, I can do this. So I had to go on a big period of learning first. I didn't have the book from inside me. It's not a book that I could just spit out using my own expertise. I had to go to all over the world to look for menopause experts and I interviewed them and synthesised into this book and it just became a runaway train. My my passion was just like peaked. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Should we just start off by describing what it is, what are the characteristics of menopause? So when I, 10 years ago, when I didn't know anything about menopause, when I used to think about what menopause was, I just pictured a lady with grey hair and pearls and maybe a cardigan and she was having some hot flushes. That's exactly what I still think it is. (laughs) Okay, we got to talk. (laughs) So the average age of menopause in Australia is still officially 51, but I suspect that's going to change. And the reason is that one in 10 Australians is actually of Asian origin and they tend to go through menopause about three to four years earlier and women of colour do as well. So there's this whole stereotype about a white woman going into menopause at 51. Menopause is a single day and it's defined as the 12-month mark from the first day of your last menstrual period. Only nobody knows it's the last menstrual period when it was happening and very few of us are anal enough to write it down. So it is that last day. Menopause hell that a lot of people describe is actually perimenopause or menopause transition. And that's the years leading up to menopause because your ovaries don't go perfect, 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 one day switch off. It's not like that. They have a bit of a slow wind down. And the first thing that happens is you lose your progesterone because you're not ovulating. Or if you do ovulate, you have a little bit of an ovulation, but your ovaries don't spit out a lot of progesterone and you can't make progesterone out of your progesterone-making factories that happen after you ovulate, unless you ovulate. And if you don't have a strong ovulation, there's just not a lot of cells there to manufacture progesterone. By the way, out of taking testosterone that's made from your ovaries but also your Mm. adrenal glands and spitting it out as progesterone. So that's the first thing that goes. Progesterone is a really chilled hormone. Like it's a really nice one. I describe it as Byron Bay. (laughs) It basically, it helps you sleep. It's a really good sleeping pill in case you're on HRT, take it at night. And it also, it just calms you down. So if you don't have progesterone, you're going to be an insomniac who's got a lot of anxiety. And in fact, perimenopause is the peak time for anxiety for women. And rightly, we focus on that postnatal period. But in fact, if you want to have a look at when anxiety and depression peaks for women, it's women between the ages of 45 and 55, which is also the peak time for suicide for women. And we don't talk about it. Mm. The second phase of perimenopause is when your estrogen starts to decline as well. And that's when you're going to start to have what we call, doctors call vasomotor symptoms. So it's your hot flushes. 75% of women get them. One in three of those women describe them as unbearable. So one in five altogether. 
A lot of women will describe them as quite mild, nothing that they'd want to necessarily get treatment for. The other thing that we tend to get is aches and pains, and particularly for women of colour and for women of Asian descent, we get more aches and pains than we do hot flushes. And in fact, we often don't connect the dots and realise that that's to do with perimenopause. Brain fog will affect 80% of women, and here's what nobody talks about, is what goes on inside your underpants. So what goes on inside What's your... What's happening inside yeah. our... <laughs> yeah. Vaginas don't do very well as estrogen gets lost. So they tend to get drier. They get more prone to urine infections. Sex becomes anywhere from mildly unpleasant to unbearable. I'm not doing that anymore. And with that, out goes your libido. And we can talk about libido later if you want to, which is one Absolutely. of my favourite topics <laughs> yeah. in the whole world. And then there's all the stuff that happens to your skin, which is, again, my complete passion. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I'm realizing listening to this that I really don't know a yeah. whole lot about menopause. I thought you were going to say I realized that Kayla's not going through early <laughs> menopause because I'm like, oh, I just have the hot flushes. <laughs> when, like, jumping into, like, you know how you were saying all of that stuff happens in the lead up, how many years in the lead up? So different studies are different because we don't have a blood test or an objective scan that we can say, yes, you're in perimenopause. We've got to put together these constellation of symptoms kind of work out the look you're in your 40s most women go into menopause around 51 it's probably perimenopause but to make a solid diagnosis which is often required for clinical trials is a fraught issue and there is no blood test for perimenopause that is currently available so what studies tell us is that these symptoms can run anywhere from about three and a half to about seven and a half years but some anecdotally some menopause specialists say they've seen patients run through it for about 10 years so we've got to be really aware of this and often women who because in australia 14 percent of women will go into menopause before they're 45 and four percent before they're 40. And this is, these are women who are completely ignored and they will never connect the dots with what's happening in their body and what's happening and, and menopause. They would never put it together because they would not think of it the if age. they're in their 20s and yeah. 30s. Why would they think of it? Yeah, interesting. And so do those women typically just end up getting treatments for whatever particular symptoms they have and, and it's just a Band-Aid therapy really? Absolutely. Women who get aches and pains are often dismissed. Mm as hypochondriacs and just women who complain a lot and will, told to, will be told to take an you know, ibuprofen and go away. Women who are running a bit hot will often be told just not to worry about it, just to calm down and just to relax, which that as any woman... That is You can't say, can't say calm down. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm hot, like, and I, I, like, sweat so much, I'm, like, I feel so uncomfortable. Like, I, I am a dramatic person. I'm definitely a hypochondriac, but I'm, like... <laughs> Oh, my God, my life is like ending. I'm like scared to go through menopause if it's going to be worse than what I'm experiencing now because. (laughs) Well, anxiety will give you a lot of vasomotor symptoms. And we know that even in menopause, you know, if you have anxiety, it will make everything much worse. You, Kayla, have got a perfect body weight, but women who are overweight will definitely have much worse vasomotor Mm. symptoms. So we know that there's a lot of complexity around this. Also, if women have an overactive thyroid, they will be very anxious they will have a racing heart they will often feel very very hot they'll often get horrible stomach symptoms like they're running to the toilet for number two all the time and unless we test you for it we don't know but in terms of perimenopause we don't know when it happens because it's really vague and it's only often in retrospect that women put these symptoms together and go I think I know what's happening here yeah. but mental health stuff women are just written off and mm. they're just told to go relax which if you're anxious is like the worst advice on the whole planet it's particularly unhelpful and we also know a lot of women are prescribed antidepressant medications and current research 
would suggest that that comes packaged with a lot of side effects, particularly weight gain and low libido, which are already a big problem around menopause. But also, you know, they're not particularly effective for that time of life. And women who are, if they think, if anyone's listening to this thinking, I wonder if this is me, rage. You're just pissed off with everybody. Everyone pisses you off. You hate your children. You're convinced they hate you back. You hate your partner. You think you may be getting a divorce. It is actually peak time for divorce. Right. So if you're a divorce lawyer, pick out the 40-year-old <laughs> women in the room and they're your girls. And then, you know, quitting work. Like you often blow up your best friendships that were, you know, your best friends since you were childhood and now all of a sudden you've now blown up that relationship. So these are the sorts of things that are happening to women around this time that they don't necessarily connect the dots but once they do, hopefully we can help them because yeah. there is so much yeah. we can do. What can you do? So I'm going to give you a couple of different yeah. answers and I'm going to start with the one that has the most evidence. Now, remember I talked about the old lady with pearls who was having yeah. hot flushes. Yeah. Vasomotor symptoms are the most well-studied symptom of perimenopause. And so what we know is that when it comes to vasomotor symptoms, hormone replacement therapy, which is a much lower dose than the pill, we're not trying to get you to a premenopausal level. We're just trying to give you just enough estrogen and progesterone just to dampen down those symptoms. But it's not going to be enough to A, suppress ovulation and, and be a contraceptive or B, be pill level. Like it's mm. nothing like that. That will be effective in about 96% of cases for vasomotor symptoms alone. It seems to be about that effective as well for the aches and pains, particularly for women of colour and Asian women because those women definitely get that and get told, you know, just to go and take an ibuprofen, but in fact HRT works really well. What we're starting to learn is that for perimenopausal depression and anxiety, in fact HRT is more effective than an antidepressant medication. Again, we've got to tweak that because there's particular types of HRT that are better than others and that becomes really complicated but at the same time it's more effective and we can wrap up a whole lot of other symptoms in there together. About 50% of women in trials will actually have an improvement in their genitourinary symptoms, so that's their bladder, their vaginal health, but 50% won't and we have to deliver estrogen directly to their vagina and we can do that in a cream or a pessary. Right. But what we can't do is give that to women who already have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. By the way, if your grandmother had breast cancer or three aunties had breast cancer or your mum had breast cancer, that is not a contraindication to hormone replacement therapy. But not everybody can or wants to have it. There is no other treatment that we can give you that will wrap up everything. And by the way, we haven't even spoken about the physical things because there is so much around bone health and endovascular health and heart health and brain health that we have not discussed. But when we remove estrogen from the system, those parts of your body really don't do very well. There's quite a rapid catch up to men in terms of your heart disease risk. Mm. Your, and listen, dementia is a women's issue. Yeah. You know, twice as many women get dementia as men. And your bone health, we know that osteoporosis fractures, again, they do happen to men, but they tend to happen more to women. We have, there is nothing that can give you everything the way that HRT can. I'm not saying that everybody should have it, but if you have, if you can't have HRT or you choose not to, we will have to cherry pick a whole lot of different things. Right. Regardless, we need to focus on your lifestyle because if you're not mm. in a healthy weight range and you're going to hot flush more, your confidence, which generally falls off a cliff, will be so low. Your libido, if you are carrying way too many kilos, so many people don't feel comfortable to take their, their clothes off and have a great time in bed because their confidence is so low. 
we need to get you into the healthy weight range because it will do so much for you. I know it's harder. It's harder if you're hitting the booze and we know that women of around age 50, mm. wine o'clock's a big thing, particularly. <laughs> I'm only 27 and wine o'clock's a big thing. <laughs> You're just feeling like an old soul. I right? yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> but we know that the biggest uptake in alcohol abuse has happened around women in their 50s, particularly well-educated higher socioeconomic women. So there's a stereotype that it's your wino who's lying in the street, the Mm. old man. Definitely there's alcohol abuse in every age group and every demographic and every religion and there's not a single, you know, description. But it's really perimenopausal women who often are not sleeping or going through Mm. mental health challenges who are self-medicating with alcohol and, again, that's going to make everything worse. So we need to look at you as a complex whole identify what is most important to you, which of these symptoms is most important to you and how do we get you to get control of your life back and how can we put as many things on the table for you to help you get there. And if we can do that, then we can walk as partners, your healthcare professional and you as partners together to give you your best now and your best future. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the the HRT has to be individualised for women or is it is there a formula or is it just depending on their own levels? So there are general rules. Mm. We generally use micronized progesterone and there'd be very few women for whom I would not choose micronized progesterone as the progesterone. It seems to be the safest and best tolerated form of progesterone, although didrogesterone is also quite a good one. But Mm. a lot of HRT still to this day uses medroxyprogesterone acetate or norethisterone, which I would not recommend as my first Mm. choices. The harder thing is when it comes to the estrogen. So we know that transdermal estrogen, estrogen applied to the skin, and we don't generally apply progesterone to the skin. It's difficult to absorb as well. When estrogen is provided through the skin, it reduces your risk to the same as what we call baseline, so people who are not on HRT, for two things, mostly migraines, and migraines are a big issue. And because migraines predispose you to a risk of stroke, we want to be really, really careful with that. So if anyone's ever had a history of migraine or just severe headaches that stop them from going out for dinner, doing a sport, catching up with a friend. To me, that is a migraine and I would not consider oral estrogen. The other thing is what we call venous thromboembolism, which is just a blood clot in your leg mainly. Now, we know that the pill increases that risk and it's not a huge increased risk, but it is there. As you get older, that risk increases anyway, particularly if you're overweight, particularly if you've got an unhealthy lifestyle, which so many women do as they go into menopause Mm. because their confidence is shot and they don't believe they're worth anything. But with all of that... If you have any risk for venous thromboembolism, again, we would not consider giving you an oral estrogen. Having said all of that, some people just can't, like it's so complex putting on a gel or a patch and then Mm -hmm. taking your progesterone tablet every night. And there is a beautiful HRT that combines one milligram of estradiol, which is kind of, I guess, the safest form of oral estrogen, with a 100 micrograms of of micronized progesterone. And a lot of my patients just find the convenience of that just so fantastic. Again, it looks like oral estrogen is not as great for mental health issues. So we mm. tend to use a patch okay. for, for people with depression. Right. Mm, interesting. Well, should we jump back into how menopause affects the skin? Because I feel like this is what I'm excited about. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know too much about um, how menopause can affect the skin until this year. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think we need to divide the effects of menopause on the skin. And by menopause, I'm going to call it the loss of estrogen because progesterone actually doesn't do that much for the skin. It doesn't really, like, don't worry about it. But when you lose estrogen for the skin, there are two big buckets of things that happen. The first thing is that you lose collagen rapidly. Now, all of us are in the business of boosting collagen. That's (laughs) what we like to do. We all want collagen in our skin because it prevents fine lines and wrinkles and big pores and thin skin. We all want to have more collagen. And estrogen actually helps your fibroblasts, the cells that make collagen, actually do its job. It also acts as an antioxidant inside the skin, so it is anti-inflammatory. Yeah, it works really well. It also increases the vasculature, which is really important to feed that epidermis from the dermis. We really want to have a good blood supply. As you get older, that flattens and the surface area for exchange of nutrients from the dermis into the epidermis actually decreases. But estrogen helps that. It also suppresses the action of matrix metalloproteinase 1. And that is there are lots of matrix metalloproteinases in the body. Some of them act in muscles. Some of them act in bone. Some of them act in what we call the endothelium of your blood vessels. But the one that we all care about, let's face it, in the skin, is actually matrix metalloproteinase 1. And actually estrogen suppresses it. Remove your estrogen and this enzyme starts gobbling up and destroying your collagen. Mm. How much? 30% loss of collagen within the first five years of going through menopause and then a further loss of 2% per year after that. Now, that really gets rid of a lot of collagen and you rapidly age. And you can see women who've gone through menopause who are not on HRT, their skin starts to really look terrible. How does that present on the skin? So you'll see your fine lines, they'll progress to your wrinkles. You know, we've got your horizontal wrinkles and what I call the sleep wrinkles, which are your vertical ones, so you lie in the wrong spot. But once you don't have the collagen so that the skin doesn't bounce back as nicely, those things get really locked in. So those 11 lines in in the middle of your forehead, they really look a lot worse. But a lot of people don't realise that big pores are, yes, the more sebum you have in your skin, the bigger your oil glands, the more you have big pores. But, of course, it's the collagen around those pores that actually minimise the the look of them. So women who've gone through menopause all of a sudden get bigger pores. They often get a disrupted skin barrier, which is the second thing that we're going to talk about, the second Mm. bucket of things that estrogen does is it maintains your skin barrier. As we lose your skin barrier, start to become more prone to pigmentation. And what patients will talk to me about and what people will report is that their skin is so itchy but also so irritated. So they can have been using the same sunscreen for 25 years and all of a sudden it makes them come out in hives and a rash. And the skincare that always worked for that well for them is now they can't tolerate it anymore. And in fact, a big group of women actually experience what we call formication, this feeling of bugs crawling on your skin. Oh, my God, is, I would hate that. Yeah, it's not <laughs> fun and it's all to do with a disrupted skin barrier. That is not, none of this is unique to menopause. So for all of the bullshit menopause-specific skin brands that are out there that charge you double, that's exploitative. There is nothing about losing your estrogen that makes your skin different to anyone who's just had accelerated ageing by spending too much time in the sun or being a smoker or having other exposure to certain medications that are pro-inflammatory. Anything that destroys collagen destroys collagen and anything that disrupts your skin barrier disrupts your skin barrier and we know how to fix that. It's actually not that difficult. We know from research how to build collagen. Are we going to build you back to a 20-year-old? No. Might need to inject a bit of filler in there to actually make you look better. But we can improve the quality of your skin. We can grow your collagen. We can prevent 
further loss because, yes, you do need sunscreen from sun up to sundown 365 days a year. Yes, you do. But we can actually fix all of this and we can fix your skin barrier as well. You don't need a menopause-specific skincare range because it's not like we're going to shove estrogen on your skin. We're not doing that. That generally goes sort of between your shoulder blades and kind of your hips. That's where you put your estrogen. But you know what? It's not it's not rocket science. We know how to fix this and we can do it. That's interesting. Yeah. Are there any specific like routines or products or ingredients that you would recommend for someone going through menopause? Well, I'm obviously going to say Evidence Skincare, which is my yeah. skincare brand. But <laughs> obviously. Uh, obviously. <laughs> Let's but jump into it. The, why we started Evidence Skincare was I would do segments on Sunrise on what really works in anti-aging skincare. So I'd go to my source of truth, which is the National Library of Medicine. I'd look up all the studies and I could tell people that you need a 10% L-ascorbic acid in a water and oil emulsion. You need the pH to be sub-3. And people would be going, yeah, okay, fine, but what product do I use? And I honestly, I trawled. I went really hard. Yeah. I went through Sephora. I went through Mecca. I went through David Jones. I just couldn't find it. And the idea of disrupting the skincare industry by actually sticking to the science, and I'm not talking about the Pons Institute yeah. or I gave this product to 18 of my friends and they all said it was great. Yeah. What I'm talking about is ingredients and formulations as they are presented in independent peer-reviewed medical journals. And what that means is when a journal has a peer review committee, that is an independent group of scientists. You don't get to know who they are. They sometimes publish who the peer reviewers are, who look at your study and go, yep, I'm, I'm good with that. So you need to subject your formulation to an independent peer review panel. And if it's good enough, they will publish it. And not all studies are good enough. If they only have 18 hairless mice, we don't call that a good bit of evidence. Yeah. That is an interesting study. Mm. But once things become purely evidence-based that we can say, no, we have now level one evidence or as close as we're going to get to that because right. this is, you know, it's not a well-funded, yeah. you know, independent research in this area is not well-funded, then we will use that. So also we not don't like getting stuck with legacy products where people love them. Therefore, even if the evidence changes, we can't change our products. Exactly. Yeah. If the evidence changes, we will change. And we just had to do that to our main skin barrier repairing right. product, which is called Repair Plus. We already had niacinamide at 5%. We already had hyaluronic acid in medium and low molecular weight so that they could actually penetrate the stratum corneum, as well as ceramides that have been studied. But the evidence for panthenol, which is provitamin B5, was getting stronger and so we decided to reformulate. We did add squalane. It doesn't have evidence. I'm not going to lie. That was just a medium to make it feel a bit yeah. better. But what we do with our products is we just look at the evidence and reproduce it faithfully. So, of course, I'm going to say ESK because I think it, it's the only range that I've seen that is just very, very loyal to the evidence. In terms of what repairs your skin barrier, we've just talked about the ingredients that repair your skin barrier. And a moisturiser is always going to be part of that. And I think when I was in medical school in the late 80s and early 90s, we did used to hear things like you just need soap and a good uh, moisturiser from the supermarket. Yeah. Moisturisers do help. The problem is that it's a wasted opportunity to not include ingredients that yeah. actually do things for your skin. It's a bit of a waste of money. If you're only going to rely on a, on a moisturiser, it's just not going to actually reverse the, the mm. damage to the architecture of the skin. So I would add, if you can, vitamin A, vitamin C. We should talk about those ingredients that build collagen. Yeah. So I would say the ones with the most evidence are vitamin A, vitamin C and alpha hydroxy acids. So the alpha hydroxy acids are extremely irritating. We have just heard that the skin barrier is often very disrupted in menopausal skin and studies show that up to 50% of women will have skin sensitivity at some point on this journey. And so alpha hydroxy acids are amazeballs, 
unless you have sensitive skin, in which case, wrong, wrong, removing those. Yeah. Ditto L-ascorbic acid, which is the evidence-based form of vitamin C. Unbelievable ingredient. It's partly a tyrosinase inhibitor, so it's great for pigmentation. It does amazing things for building collagen. It is an antioxidant inside the skin. It does prevent uh, UV damage. Amazing, except that it tends to be irritating. So again, it's one of those things that we have to take off the table, at least until we've repaired the skin barrier for postmenopausal skin. The big exception is your blockbuster, which is vitamin A. So I think everybody knows about vitamin A. Sometimes there's an umbrella term for all vitamin A's that they call retinol. In fact, if you do a vitamin A blood test, it gets called a retinol blood test. The thing is retinol chemically is a very specific substrate of vitamin A. And inside the skin, retinol needs to be converted to retinol using enzymes that not everybody has and not everybody has in abundance. So you'll see if you use a retinol product that there's a, a, a shit ton of retinol in there because they're hoping that some of it eventually makes it through to retinoic acid. Mm. The step in the middle is called retinol or retinaldehyde. Now the beauty of retinaldehyde is that 100% of retinaldehyde is converted to retinoic acid but in a controlled release because it's limited by the number of enzymes that we all have. Mm. 100% of retinol will ultimately become retinoic acid, but because of that controlled release, you get zero irritation. So it can be right. used with rosacea, it can be used for menopausal skin, even the most sensitive menopausal skin, and you get to have all the benefits of the collagen building and even combating acne, which 14% of 50-year-olds are still getting regular breakouts, about 23% of 40-something still yeah. get regular breakouts. We can combat all of that. We can combat your pigmentation because vitamin A is amazing for that. We can do all of that. But when it comes to menopausal skin, I would only use retinol. Here's the downside of retinol. It's about $30,000 a kilo. So I understand why most brands don't manufacture with it. And it needs to be transported and continually maintained at minus 20 degrees Celsius yeah. from our factory in Europe to our factory in Australia where we manufacture. Right. So a lot of people stick to retinol because even though there's not a lot of evidence that it actually does mm. anything, it's cheap as chips. If anybody wants to start their own skincare brand yeah. in their garage, go for it. You can buy some retinol online. It's made everywhere. It's cheap as chips. You can manufacture it. It can just be sent by Australia Post. No worries. And you can mix it. It's just not going to do terribly much for your skin and it might give you retinol burn. So if I was treating a menopausal patient, my strong preference would be to use retinol, particularly with a skin barrier building um, ingredient as well, like niacinamide, hyaluronic acid, panthenol, just to help get the most out of her skin. And once her skin barrier is, you know, completely repaired, sky's the limit. You yep. can go back to AHAs, you can go back to L-ascorbic acids. Right. While you're waiting, you might want to do a PHA, a polyhydroxy acid, yep. because that's not only non-irritating, it's actually tends to settle down inflamed skin and actually add moisture in, which is very nice. Do you guys have a polyhydroxy acid in your range? Can you ask me again in two weeks? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, we will. It's called Gentle Glow. It will be out in two weeks. Uh, yeah. I, find I love um, polyhydroxy I love, acid. Yes. I love ours so yes. much. So it's lactobionic acid, obviously, yeah. um, and gluconolactone. So we already have gluconolactone in our um, AHA serum. Yeah. And it's – I'm – in Perry still, but as I'm heading towards menopause, I want that PHA serum. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, oh, yeah. I'm on HRT, so yeah. I, I'm not. Yeah. I, I'm not going to have the same issues as everybody else. But right. I've come up in rosacea, which I'm just not happy about. <laughs> White woman's curse. <laughs> so we've spoken about products. Do you do treatments in your clinic? No. So I'm one of the few doctors who I've never done a Botox injection. I'm 
a bit uncoordinated. Like, I'm not going to lie, I probably wouldn't want me doing any of that sort of stuff. I probably aim for your left forehead and get your your right leg, you know. I'm just not – and I don't back myself. And really I think as my career has become more of a sort of slashy career with Mm. more and more things – I've got to take more clinical things out because oh, I haven't mentioned I'm still teaching at university yeah. and I've still got so many things in there that and I love traditional primary care. I love looking after people's general health. I'm still really passionate about the management of a postmenopausal woman's general health, so her cardiovascular, mm. her her brain health, and that's where I feel I add the most value. But what I do love doing and part of the reason why people go how are you 55 and have that skin and you've never had one injection you've I was never had your skin is yeah. incredible and I've never had needling and I've never had a, a peel or any yeah. of that my greatest success is the fact that I am such a hardcore nerd that I have never been a surfy chick I've never gone to right. the beach I've just sat inside with studies yeah. so being a nerd has its advantage at some point you do actually end up with not bad skin from yeah. having Zero UVB exposure, mm. need lots of vitamin D <laughs> yeah, supplements, yeah, yeah. but that, that's one of the things that happens. So I will love science. I love translating science. I love being able to look at a study. Sometimes I don't even understand the science, study, but if I look at it long enough, like a balance sheet or a cash flow. Mm, it makes summary, sense. <laughs> yeah, at some point. Ultimately you learn to speak it and yeah. you do actually learn what it means. What about like vaginal treatments? Like, can you give me some? Like Mcella, yeah, like, like all of those to help radio frequency. You know. So there are a few things that happen to a postmenopausal vagina, but what's really interesting is it often starts in perimenopause. So there is a lot more to it than simply the loss of estrogen because some women will get it in postmenopause. When you, we're talking about vasomotor symptoms. The average length of hot flushes is maybe seven, seven and a half years unless it starts in perimenopause, in which case it goes for about 11 and a half years. But ultimately 19 out of 20 women will stop having hot flushes. And so if you can wait it out and you really don't want to do any medical treatment, that's cool. Your vagina is another story. Year on year it gets worse and it will never, ever get any better. And not only that, if we do start treatment, how good we can get her, the ceiling comes down. I can always improve her but I can't get her back anywhere close to a premenopausal vagina. So if anybody is listening to this, tomorrow is the day to book the so treatment saying, with so your the doctor. the later you start, the worse. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and we can't get it any, any good. The evidence for vaginal estrogen is phenomenal. It's a really, really compelling set of, of data. And that can be delivered by a cream. I personally find the cream a little bit messy. It comes with an applicator that, please don't put that in your vagina, trying to clean it afterwards is just a nightmare. (laughs) So put it on your finger, work out roughly what the dose should look like and then use that to put a little bit on the outside, a little bit on the inside. If you've got long nails, it does really start to get a little bit mucky and a little bit messy. Most of my patients prefer a pessary and you start off the loading doses every night for two weeks and then it's one twice a week until you don't need your vajayjay anymore. A big study just came out showing that actually a well-estrogenised vagina actually helps prevent recurrent urine infections, mm. which is a scourge for older women and tends to – in nursing homes are full of them. Yeah. They go into delirium. It's, it's the thing. My friend is an ED nurse and she said one of the leading causes of death in her hospital – is actually older women having UTIs. A hundred percent because it's not recognised. So if you think about what a urinary tract inf- infection means to you now, it's the burning, the yeah. stinging, the need to pee every five minutes. That doesn't happen with older women. What happens is it's a bit stinky but they're all incontinent. So like no, like 
what's the difference between a urine infection? Right. Like you've got to have like that sommelier's nose to really tell the difference between <laughs> urine so infection. Go yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll go to the nursing home. And <laughs> yeah, just start sniffing everyone's incontinence pads. No, thank you. Oh, but like we, yeah. we do give a lot of vaginal estrogen in nursing homes to try and prevent that. And also because... Vaginal atrophy can actually end up in ulcers and bleeding and incredible pain for these women. So it is not a bad idea to start doing it earlier. So how long would you use it? I intend to use it forever. That's I'm, I'm not letting her go to the dogs. That's yeah. just not happening for me. <laughs> now let's talk about other non-estrogen mm. um, containing uh, ingredients. The thing that – because a lot of women are very worried about any hormones going in my body – I just need to reassure women that a year on a vaginal estrogen is the same as a day on HRT. Like it's a very low dose in terms of systemic absorption into the bloodstream. But let's say you don't want to use that. I would look for a moisturiser that has hyaluronic acid in it. We know hyaluronic acid is good for the skin. It will certainly help um, in terms of... Are you just putting that externally? No, we'll do both external and internal. Does it give you thrush? No, no. And nor does vaginal estrogen really interestingly very rarely. I mean... Diabetes will give women thrush. Yes. And so, again, there's another compelling reason to look after your weight and actually eat well and do some yeah. exercise. But in terms of other products, can we just quickly talk about lubricants? Mm. A water-based lubricant that perhaps used to work when you were 13 and your boyfriend took all of 90 seconds to ejaculate is <laughs> not going to work with an older man. Sorry, block your ears. <laughs> but men like to think that it's the woman's vagina that gets bigger. No, it doesn't. It shrinks. As you go through menopause, poor Vijay gets quite a lot smaller and so does his penis. And so do the nerve endings not work quite well. And 27 minutes to from beginning to end is not uncommon. That is unbearable with a water-based lubricant. You'll need to be reapplying that every two minutes. <laughs> do you say so, 27 minutes? Not uncommon. Nightmare. You think that sounds good? It doesn't, I promise you. <laughs> no, it's, it's really yeah, – you really want to send your husband out because saying, can you just do the first 20 minutes on your own in the bathroom? I just don't need no, to say I it. Just say go do it. 27 minutes, Jesus, that's a very long time. It's horrific. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I mean, and when you've got a very sore vajayjay, that is just not a lot yes. of fun. So it is controversial, but I love Professor Gail Fisher from Sydney University. She is just the world's guru on everything vaginas and it was her who taught me that the best lubricant – as you get older, is to get some good old coconut oil. Yes, it is solid at rest, so in the pantry. Just grab that, warm it up in your hands. Here, I'm making the noise. <laughs> and then don't put it on the vagina. That needs to go all over the penis. Very convenient. Keep rubbing. Just keep rubbing that for the next know, 10 I've, minutes. I've heard that before yeah. as well, coconut I've oil. I've never heard that. Yeah. Why and on it, the penis it, and not on the vagina, sorry? Because you can't get it evenly distributed right. all over the vagina. So if you're trying, your fingers are up there, you're going to need to do it for ages. Yeah. Plus you want to give him a bit of a tug beforehand to just yeah. get this whole thing show on the road. Let's just get it going now. We don't have a lot of premature ejaculators in that 50-plus age bracket that have the opposite problem. So we just give him a bit of a tug, go for five minutes, and then see if that helps because it takes a long time to come off. So that's my favourite lubricant. Mm. And no risk of thrush. No, 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 no. So it comes out. It, it's, yeah. When it's warm, yeah. coconut oil actually becomes liquid and eventually comes out. So, okay. yeah, you don't have to worry about yeah. that. And there's not a lot of sugar in yeah. coconut oil. The devices are really fraught. So the evidence for them is really, really mm. pathetic. And the studies that are coming out now are showing that there's not much benefit over a sham procedure. Wow. What's and a that sham? Is, so a sham, like let's say with acupuncture and we're trying oh, okay, to say yeah. – 
Like I can't do acupuncture versus no acupuncture because you know whether you've had a needle or not. Yeah. But what if I put the needle in a spot that is not actually on a meridian or meant to actually do anything? We call that sham acupuncture and we use that to actually study acupuncture. Yeah. We do similar sham procedures where we maybe shove something up your vagina, make it go a little bit warm, but it's not actually – you can't tell whether you've had the actual procedure or not. The operator generally can't tell either. So that's the, the ideal study would be – double blind in other words you don't know what you're getting but the person giving it to you also doesn't know what you're getting so that there's no bias Bias, because when it comes to vasomotor symptoms 75 percent placebo effect 75 percent so what it looks like is that for all the devices when it comes to vaginas they don't seem to do anything above a placebo I don't have a big problem with placebos except that these things are often expensive and there have been quite a few studies and case reports of people having so much inflammation afterwards in their vagina that the vagina scars and closes up. And most women who are having these procedures don't want her to close up altogether. That's a very excellent (laughs) treatment for prolapse. Not great for women who want to be sexually active. Not a good time. So right now I would have no interest in any procedure for the vagina. I don't think we're there yet. I do think we need more studies though because if you're – there have been so many things where we said there's no evidence, there's no evidence, there's no yeah. evidence and all of a sudden the evidence comes out or things that we knew to be right yeah. until they got disproven, like covering a wound. I mean when I was a kid we used to get told, leave your wounds open, mm. let them scab over. We all got told to put iodine and Dettol and – you know, iodine powder all over yeah. your wounds. We now know that that delays wound healing and that's terrible and we need to keep them moist and we need to keep them covered. That was a concept that has still not percolated through no. throughout the nursing profession but it kind of took a we know this concept and turned it on its head. I love that. We need more studies. But right now where we're at with the studies, there is no benefit from any chairs or any devices that we know of. And if your patient tells you it's changed my life, great, but it could have been the placebo or it could have been the estrogen that you're also giving them. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I read that that article about the CO2 laser because that mm. I think was the first real vaginal treatment for rejuvenation and it became very popular especially in the US. People lots of people were getting it done and now they've just come forward and said, look, there's really no evidence that this is working at all. Correct. I mean the idea behind mm. all of these procedures that cause minor skin injuries is that as part of the healing you create more collagen more elastin you revascularize an area and that in theory should be good for the vagina the problem is if you don't have estrogen in there it's not going to be lubricated and it's not going to be enough if we want the vagina to be able to expand to fit an expanding penis in she's going to probably need a good amount of moisturizing and a very good amount of estrogen so Right now, the evidence is not there. Watch this space. If anything changes, I'll let you guys know. I'm reading the studies every day yeah. like the good nerd that well, I am. We'll message you <laughs> every two weeks on an update. Yeah. Well, should we wrap up the podcast because we have been we've, talking we've for a long for time. I actually learned a lot. You yeah. are really hey. knowledgeable. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's. I do like to be a little bit on the nerd side. So and And I like to be honest and transparent because I think that 
doctors, we have an obligation not to talk down to our patients, to be inclusive, to mm-hmm. treat them like the smart people that they are, but also not to sell them, a, you know, a doddle. Yeah. So I think if we can hit that, then we can go on the journey with our patients. We can be the co-pilots while our patients are the pilots, which is really, really important. We know that you optimise outcomes if you are in control of your own health journey. My job is just to give you information and then my real job is to actually get the information so I'm not giving you BS. Yeah. Before we totally close the podcast, we have some questions for you. Mine is what is your favourite ESK product that you think everyone should have or try? So my biggest issue is pigmentation yeah. and I it's genetic, which we know a lot of pigmentation is genetic. So I love Enlighten. The key hero ingredient is 4-embutyrosorcinol, which in studies is the most powerful inhibitor of tyrosinase, the enzyme that creates is required to create melanin, but also it's safe for long-term use. So you don't need to keep, you know, going off it. So we know that if you use, let's say, hydroquinone, we need to pair it with a hydrocortisone, which thins the skin, causes more telangiectasia, those little red blood vessels, nobody wants those. And also you can only use it for three months, then you have to go off it and then restart it again. For embutyl resorcinol has close to zero absorption into the body and therefore it can be used in pregnancy and it can be used indefinitely. Amazing. Well, I was going to ask you what your favorite skincare treatment was to have, but you haven't I've actually had it. <laughs> I've never had one. I had have a, you had a facial? I had a facial before I got married and I loved it. It yeah. was beautiful. Yeah. But like, honestly, I'm a massage slut. Like I'll just go anywhere for a <laughs> yeah. massage, but yeah. I just don't touch my face. Yeah. I love a facial massage. <laughs> yeah. I lo- I'm, I, like I think a facial massage is beautiful, but yeah. just don't. Put those products and don't put steam anywhere near my face, please. <laughs> no on that. Yeah, fair. We usually ask about your best skin tip, but I'd love to know what your best tip is if you are someone who is going through menopause. I'm not going to lie. It is never too late to use sunscreen. When you have a sunscreen, an ounce of prevention is still worth a pound of cure, even at 50, but make sure that your sunscreen is definitely a broad spectrum sunscreen while the SPF refers to the UVB protection so that number is the multiple of time you can spend in the sun before you burn compared to if you don't have sunscreen on it doesn't tell you whether it's UVA and UVB specific that requires the words broad spectrum and that needs to be used 365 days a year from sun up to sundown don't forget UVB is for burning and most skin cancers UVA is for aging I don't want any loss of my collagen. So I really need UVA protection, even in winter, every single day. Yeah. Wow. Amen. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. I thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. We'll speak to you next time. Yay. Yeah. Learned a lot. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. So after that conversation, I think it's clear I'm not going through menopause. Or is it more clear that I am? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting. We covered a lot more symptoms than than the ones that you have reported. Yes, yes. You I, know what she was saying? She was like, um, there was like a hormone that like um, makes you chill and when you're pause, like it, you, you're you not chill. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not fucking chill. Did you guys think But you same? are chill. Do you think? Yeah. We had this conversation. Oh, no, I'm chill in terms of like, I'm not crazy, but I am like not chill. I think you're chill, but I feel like your mind is not chill. <laughs> As in like you're always thinking about something. Yeah, it doesn't switch off. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. And that was the first thing that, that goes, right? Your mind? No, the progesterone. Oh. <laughs> See, are you sure? <laughs> fish mind. I'm a fish. All righty, let's wrap it up. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I know it was like slightly different to what we usually talk about because I feel like it was a lot more medical, but we did bring skin into it, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I learned a lot. Make sure to follow us on our socials. All the information will be in the description and don't forget to leave us a review and we will see you in our next podcast. Bye. Bye. Adios, amigos.